Hi and welcome everyone to the I have a dream podcast where host Rajan Navani initiates candid conversations with industry leaders and experts to explore their aspirations for India as we enter a golden period. Rajan is the national chairman of CII's Council on Future Businesses India at 75 and the Artificial Intelligence Task Force and chairman managing director and CEO of Jet Synthesis. Today's episode features Vinayak Chatterjee, the chairman of CII's National Council on Infrastructure, where he talks about how the infrastructure space will evolve over the next 25 years. To find out more, stay tuned. To all of you ladies and gentlemen and welcome to this session on I have a dream new infrastructure for a new India. Uh, this is being brought to you by CII as a part of the India at 75 initiative which is also being celebrated in conjunction with the government of India through the Azadi ka Amrit Mahotsav so yes we are finally here we are in our 75th year of independence and it's been a long journey that CII has undertaken since India turned 60 uh, you know CII has been at the front of really leading this agenda that has brought multiple stakeholders together to not only create a vision for an aspirational india but also over the last 15 years work on different aspects of development that have positioned us to be here where we are today so it's been a long journey uh, but you know we have a much longer way to go and i think as we complete uh, the 75th year of indian independence i think it is important for us to look ahead and see where india will be in 2047 uh, towards an india at 100 and i think uh, the fireside series chat today here with vinayak chatterjee the chairman of cii's national council on infrastructure is exactly going to be uh, on on those lines you know i know vinayak you have written a lot on you know what is more tropical and you know the budget and you know all the short term fixes uh, for us and as a country but you know today i would really encourage you uh, to to think further ahead of course we will take stock of where we have reached uh, today you know what could be some of the ways in which we can accelerate what we are doing in the infrastructure sector but more importantly you know given that we live in such a disruptive world where i think even the definition of infrastructure is changing uh, you know digital has got so much more to contribute uh, to what we would traditionally treat as as infrastructure uh, and so many other changes so in that disruptive world uh, also try and see how we can bring about some new thinking uh, both in policy making uh, in multi stakeholder engagement maybe even the subjects on which you know we need to engage more as a society as we continue uh, to move ahead so thank you vinayak firstly for being here with us uh, always a pleasure to chat with you and if there's one thing you know i have realized over the last uh, 15 years of having interacted with you on this subject is that you always speak your mind <laughs> so you are a, you know no uh, without any filters you you speak from your heart you're passionate about this sector and really look forward uh, to a wonderful discussion you know a uh, beginning from here so again uh, welcome and maybe a good place for us to to start is you know in the context of what you know i just mentioned vinayak you know about you know we moving as a country uh, towards an india at 100 over the next 25 years if one were to you know kind of step back and really see you know what should be the directional thinking as we think over a next 25 year kind of a time frame maybe with execution points along the way you know that will help us measure how far we are getting towards what we would like to see india be at 2047 uh, maybe we can start with some thinking around that and then get into a deeper conversation on specific subjects so again welcome and and over to you and look forward to your initial opening thoughts on this subject thank you rajan it's indeed a pleasure a privilege and an honor to be on a fireside chat session with you particularly uh, on a subject like india earlier at india at 75 and now looking further india at 100 but before i go on to the infrastructure subject rajan i want to pay a personal compliment to you if you have seen me for 15 years arguing passionately about infra issues i have seen you anchoring india at 75 and now moving on to india at 100 
by, there are many passionate people at CII. CII is such a vast institution that it has people with different passions. And what I have seen you do is you have embraced all the passion resident in CII members to actually harmonize them into a universal thought for what this country should be at a particular time of its uh, history. So my congratulations to you and thank you once again for inviting me to this to this show. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. <laughs> but, but no, it's my pleasure. I, I, have watched you in action. I have watched you in action. Uh, harmonizing is not easy. It's not easy. Sectoral expertise is much more easier than harmonizing. But anyway, now what you've actually forced me to do, Rajan, is you've, <laughs> I mean, it, it might sound trite, but you forced me to think <laughs> in a sense that I am very much a here and now person. Most of my comments on TV or media or post-budget or wherever you hear me is about what's happening here and now. Is it right or wrong? What should we do? How should we get going? How can things improve, etc.? You actually forced me to stop on my tracks and scratch my head and say, my God, Rajan now wants me to think of India 25 years hence. Now, that was a big challenge, but I warmed up to the subject while preparing for this chat show. So if I... If I have your permission, uh, let me outline for you what I thought of, uh, you know, India at 100, if I may simplify it, uh, across five broad clusters. The first one is, what is the expectation from core infrastructure? Core infrastructure is normally three areas, water, electricity, and transport, right? There I have a thought which says, 25 years from now, on a scale of 100, on the drudgery index, we should be at zero. What, why, what, is, what is meant by the drudgery index? The drudgery index is simple, on water. Why should village women have to walk with pots on their head to get water? Why should a farmer have to be awake at 12 at midnight to put on his pump set switch when the electricity board gives him power? Why do children have to study under lantern light or candle light or under street light if electricity is not available 24 by 7? So transportation, why should people have to walk for miles and miles before they can access public transport? Now, so this is what I call the drudgery index. And 25 years from now, across the core areas of water, electricity, and transport, if the, if the worst drudgery index that India has seen has, has been 100 at any point of time, 25 years from now, I would like to see the drudgery index of core infrastructure utility linkages at zero. Nobody should be thinking about 24 by 7 portable water. Nobody should be, you know, having to book uh, their travels from Delhi to Kerala 90 days in advance before the school holidays or not get reservations on trains. Uh, people should not be more than five kilometers away from an access to public transport anywhere in the country, including a village. So this is what I mean by my first cluster on core infrastructure, a zero score on a scale of 100 on drudgery index for core infra. Let's move to the cluster number two. The cluster number two is to attempt a similar kind of movement on what I call social infrastructure. Now, social infrastructure basically consists of healthcare, education, housing, retail, leisure and entertainment. Now, in Technically, most of at least my discussions and most of discussions in the policy circles are about core infrastructure. We have seen how the underbelly of Indian healthcare infrastructure has been exposed during the pandemic, right? Even otherwise, we have seen children sitting under trees because there is an absence of appropriate schools in villages and small towns. Uh, we have seen people living in chows and shanties and makeshift hovels, uh, which is being addressed currently by the Prime Minister's Awas Yojana, which plans 8 million houses. So basically the point I'm saying is that for a human being to have a quality, certain quality of life, you must also have quality social infrastructure. And by social infrastructure, I also mean parks and green areas and holiday destinations and and large nature parks, national parks, all of them developed to, an, a, to, a, to a level where the average Amadi, the average Indian, can get the benefit of housing, nature, parks, greenery, appropriate 
technology in healthcare and what one would call quality schools in education. So that would be my second level of expectation that in 25 years, India should be at the level of what the Western developed world is today in terms of social infrastructure. The people should not have to worry about schools, healthcare, national parks, green belts, recreation, uh, housing, social infrastructure. And there my scale would be saying, whatever is best in class today in Western societies, in 25 years, we should strive to get there. And that is a, that's a reasonably clear benchmark. My third thing is that on infra, both at the core and social levels, while India has, and the Prime Minister has delivered some targets at, at Glasgow, uh, at, at, at you know for, at the COP uh, twenty six seminar uh, the, uh, deliberations on on how much India is going to participate in green energy. But twenty five years from now, I would like to see India as close to hundred percent on green energy and as close to zero as possible on use of fossil fuels. So whether it is 100% electrification of railways, which is almost done by 2023, 24, Indian railways will be 100% electric. And then I understand that electric vehicles of different types, hydrogen, electric, whatever, should happen up to significant levels, 65, 70% by 2030, 2035. So by 2047, I would expect transportation to be 100% green. Uh, and, and therefore, um, everything connected with the provision of utilities, buildings and social infrastructure, whether they're hospitals, schools, parks, should all run on green energy. So I would feel that India at, at uh, 100 uh, should be as close as possible to being a green energy oriented country as is possible. Uh, since certain commitments have been made for 2070 at an official level, uh, I do know that 2047 may be over ambitious, but therefore I'm being cautious to say we should monitor and measure to see how close we can be to 100% green energy sufficient economy by 2047. My fourth cluster is a desire to see infrastructure utilities operate with a certain level of constant efficiency. Uh, and for that, I personally believe, and as you know, I'm a passionate believer in PPP. I passionately believe that government should move out of running infrastructure uh, utilities and create enabling frameworks, regulatory environment, monitoring, encouraging the private sector to run power plants, to run railways, to run the long distance and urban bus services, to run the metro rails, which is already mandated, by the way. The new mandates say that all metro rails should be run, OLM should be by private sector. So I would like to see the government gradually get out of operating infrastructure. It could still own the assets, but it should make the assets available on OLM contracts for private sector to run. So I am not arguing that you have to sell all the family silver or that state ownership of infra assets is not necessary. These are complicated subjects. But there is reasonably universal agreement among economists and infrastructure policy experts that gradually getting government out of running these on a day-to-day -day basis and giving it to private sector that knows its job technically and otherwise would be a significant increase in the efficiency of running these uh, uh, infrastructure utilities. So that would be my fourth cluster. And my last cluster is my last cluster is something that our uh, President earlier, uh, Mr. Abdul Kalam, had passionately argued for, and many policymakers and uh, thinkers and planners had accepted it. He had unleashed a scheme called Pura, providing urban amenities to rural areas. Now, India, as Gandhiji said, lives in its villages, and there is no reason why it should not continue to do so. I am extremely worried about the pace of urbanization with hordes and waves of people gradually coming to make a living in, in our cities. The reverse problem, while we noticed a little of it during COVID, that a lot of people went back to their village homes and started to build lives and careers there and found it a far more enriching experience, provided there were jobs and opportunities. I would like to see a movement where a village is so self-sufficiently connected in terms of broadband, electricity, transportation, um, uh, amenities, medical access, transportation access, that people can choose to live and work in villages 
and yet contribute to the economy as much as they would in urban areas. So therefore, my last cluster five is a, a re-emphasis of the dream of uh, Sri Abdul Kalam of providing urban amenities to rural areas so that each of India's six-stack villages becomes and become dynamos by themselves in terms of fostering economic activity, creativity, and in the process, giving people who live there a quality of life that they may not have got in the city of today. So these are my five clusters, Rajan, and uh, over to you. No, thanks, thanks, Vinayak. I think your, your dream for the India of 2047 is so well and clearly articulated, you know, and I think all the five core aspects that you have talked about, I'm sure resonated with every Indian in some shape or form, because I think these are all so critical, uh, you know, in, in making the 2047 or the India at 100 real for so many of us, you know, here in India. But you know, uh, maybe we can quickly uh, go a little deeper into each of these five areas and then talk about some of the other things. You know, when you talk of core infra and you talk of you know water, electricity, transport, and maybe seamless mobility for people, uh, you know, over the next 25 years, uh, what what else do you see as developing as core infrastructure? I mean, and I'm talking of a nation that is looking at leapfrogging, right? Like for me. You know, if you look at digital infrastructure, you know, that has become today, say, the smartphone or the mobile, uh, you know, phone has become uh, something that is of immense utility and benefit in the daily average life of, of anybody in, anywhere in India, right? And, and tomorrow, even it can impact social infrastructure because education, healthcare, a lot of those services can be delivered using that medium. How do you how would you look at that when it comes to a context from a particularly from a nation from a country you know is that something that the government needs to take ownership of or like we are seeing a lot of private sector taking ownership that's just one aspect but is there any other emerging critical infrastructure that you consider core over the next twenty five years? Look, in the it's easy to answer that question in terms of energy because there the leapfrogging is effectively going to be a vast amount of investment in solar, wind, and hydrogen, right? So it's very easy to quantify that because there are numbers of megawattage and usage. So let's take that as given. The water is probably, is not that difficult to quantify either because at this point of time, when the Jaljeevan mission started, there were 19 crore households in this country that did not have 24 by 7 connected drinking water. And with each passing year, and hopefully by 2024, the target is that all these will have portable drinking water. Uh, so that's also the leapfrogging there is happening as we are talking, because there is a massive program underway to achieve that. But the other leapfrogging effectively is, and I know there's a lot of criticism on mega irrigation and river linking projects, but honestly, if it is environmentally, sensitively, and ecologically, and done in an ecologically balanced manner, then the big leapfrogging in the water area is to balance India's drought areas with water supply areas so that at times of monsoon and rains, the excess water doesn't flow out into the oceans. It is somehow managed to be kept to feed the drought-prone areas like the Ken Betwa project, which was announced in this budget. It's a 46,000 crore project that transfers with a 22 kilometer pipeline, which transfers excess water from region X to region Y. Now, I am, I am, my sympathies are with environmentalists and with other ecological concerns. But after all, we have seen major hydroelectric projects in this country in the in the 50s and 60s, which have stood the country in good stead, like Damodar Valley Corporation, Bhakra Nangal, etc. So, if you ask me, the big leapfrogging after the 24 by 7 water connectivity is a new system of interconnected canals. Think of the Indira Gandhi Canal that has green Rajasthan, starting from Punjab and going into Gujarat. That is iconic in its impact on what it has done to the corridor through which that water flows. So I would argue that leapfrogging would mean uh, not just interlinking rivers, but a system of connecting canals and maybe some interconnection of rivers that reduces the imbalance of water supply from the source, so far as India is concerned. That would be leapfrogging on the water sector. On transportation, the leapfrogging is very simple. You should have a, think of a model in your head where people should find air travel affordable for anywhere up to say 1,000 to 2,000 kilometers. 
and from and from 100 to 5 600 kilometers or 600 kilometers should be fast trains economic you know green energy driven trains electric trains i don't want to call it bullet train because the moment you say bullet train a lot of people get their hackles up so because it is elitist it is expensive i am not using the word bullet train i am saying trains like the vande bharat which this budget again has announced a whole spate of them india needs a new generation of comfortable very fast intercity trains that people voluntarily choose to use over other means of transport but once you get off at a station in the hinterland of 300 kilometers or 400 kilometers uh, or 200 you should have very efficient public transport thereafter if you're getting off at a city you should be able to connect to a metro if you're getting off at a non metro destination you should be able to connect at a regional railway or air conditioned luxury buses that run comfortably through the new roads that are being built through the country this is to give you a flavor of saying and of course stations should be friendly and air connectivity has to and the udan scheme actually addresses that issue in civil aviation that cities and hubs in this country need to be have airports so that would be my vision of saying minimum use of personal transport a system of public transport that distinguishes between long distance air travel shorter distance rail travel and immediate vicinity of vehicular travel preferably public transport and not cars so let me stop here no i think i think very well put you know vinak because while you're not focusing on the challenges and problems actually proposing the leapfrogging solutions and you know a country like india needs all of this to be implemented at scale right so whatever we do it has to find a way to be replicable you know across different aspects different policy makers different types of you know social background economic backgrounds that exist you know and diversity of that in in our different country different parts of the country so you know great great point on the social infrastructure piece that you talked about you know which was your second big bucket you know countries like japan uh, you know have actually already set in motion something called society 5.0 where the use of technology uh, you know is being you know the the citizen at the center and technology around the citizen driving all the aspects that you talked of i think a very deep well thought out kind of a, a, a program you know that has gone beyond the you know uh, iot and industry 4.0 which you know all of us are still talking about right how do we bring that into into society but that's very specific to japan do you see merit in in india you know looking at something on 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 that aspect is it a feasible idea would it would it be you know a, a more a state or a local city and district kind of a subject or should can there be some national you know kind of push around it uh, some thoughts around 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 the use of technology and how a lot of the social infrastructure pieces can get seamlessly 360 degrees to citizen look i think delivering social infra through digital is obviously the choice in the next 25 years but having said it digital has its limitations like we have seen the children who have been schooling themselves or college pupils who have not gone to campus for the two years during covid may have imbibed some technical lessons on uh, on 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 online teaching but they have missed out a major aspect of their life in terms of at a particular age the process of socialization of sitting in a classroom similarly for medical you can get test reports diagnosed online you can have scans sent online but if it is a question of repairing a fractured bone or if it is a question of a surgical intervention uh, you cannot uh, avoid physical uh, you know uh, infrastructure call it social call it core so the point i'm trying to make is it is obviously digital will take away a lot of unnecessary travel and unnecessary face to face interactions but the point you're making about japan is actually a new way of thinking historically we have basically talked from a centrist attitude saying that okay tell me the state capitals that don't have an all india institute of medicine kind of large multi speciality hospital and let's have five more let's have 20 more iits let's have 50 more iims right now that is a centrist approach suppose i were to turn the argument on its head the way you positioned it for japan and make the human being the center of the plan 
and say, I am designing metrics to say that for a surgical intervention of a particular kind, not very exotic, but simple surgical, you know, intervention of the kind that's 80% of the gain, any citizen of India should not be more than 100 kilometers from a hospital that can do it. No Indian citizen should be five kilometers from being able to access public transportation. Right. Now, these are examples where I am coming closer to your Japanese model, where I design my expansion program, my investment program with the consumer, the end beneficiary as the starting point and not the uh, scattering of mega projects as the starting point. So you're bang on there. And I think it is not a style of uh, uh, planning that we've been used to. Now think about it. It is, it is this null sejal program 24 by seven was instituted two years ago, right? That is a classic consumer centric program saying, I want every home. Now tell me why couldn't this have been thought in 1950 or 51? I don't blame anybody, but I'm saying the, my, the mental attitude to planning was a centrist centralized method. And what the Japanese model is teaching us is turn it on its head and make it an end beneficiary defined parameter by which the investment decision drives itself. But let me stop here. Yeah, that's exactly how we would look at any entrepreneurial model or any business model when we want to cater to large number of consumers, right? It's, it's exactly yeah. the same approach. So I think bringing that kind of thought process, you know, in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a government and private led kind of uh, initiative uh, could probably be the one. But I think this is something that Vinayak will reach out to you more for, you know, as we go down this path of building this vision for India at 100 over the next four months. So, you know, the way CI is really looking at it is, uh, you know, we have BCG on board with us as a knowledge partner, pretty much how, you know, in, in 2007 and eight, when we were at India at 60, we built a bottom up visioning exercise for what India would be in, you know, uh, 2022, uh, we, we are working similarly to bringing all of these thoughts at the core, filtering it and really positioning a roadmap, you know, and this is something we are looking at kickstarting next month. And then over the next four months, CI will engage with, with multiple stakeholders. So I think many of you who are listening in, uh, you know, we would be tapping into you and creating platforms by way of which you can engage with us specifically on this subject uh, as we look at, you know, capturing the, the not only the, uh, you know, the ideas that can change uh, India, you know, rapidly or at an accelerated way, but also the thought process behind creating a framework that will make this, you know, more seamless than what uh, it has been, uh, you know, until now. Uh, you know, coming to the third point on green energy, you know, I think again, you know, since we are at CII, you know, the green buildings, you know, what, uh, what CII's Green Center has done, you know, over these years, you know, we are the second largest number of green buildings in the world, happened in this journey of, you know, India at 75, pretty much in the last 15 years, in addition to many other initiatives, whether it's water, Swiss Viveni Institute and others. But, you know, what kind of, you know, checks and balances when I you feel we should be looking at or measuring, you know, especially like you said, you know, energy using renewable, etc., is 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 very easily doable, very easily understandable, right? I, and I think it will happen because many factors will drive it in that direction. But if we were to look at a 25-year kind of a, a period and you know look at our end goals that you talked about. What do you think would be a five-year defining metric, or how would you suggest we look at, you know, the progress we are making and then course correct or accelerate or reprioritize things, you know, as we move forward? Any thoughts around that? You know, energy is a complicated subject, but I'll try and simplify it for you by saying it is across the emphasis is across four links in the chain: fuels which is broadly coal, petroleum, sun, wind, etc. that produces the energy. Then you have uh, generators that use those inputs to produce electric current. Then you have a transmission network, which is one of the best in the world today, a national transmission network that transmitted. And you have the distribution network. Our, we, you know, we don't have a problem in the first three weeks. 
our problem is that the distribution tail wags the power dog <coughs> and distribution is the weakest link in the chain and is responsible for a huge degree of problems that this country faces including making india uncompetitive enough has been said i don't want to elaborate there so the attack measurable attack in the next 5 years you ask me has to be on distribution it's a complicated subject but let's me let me keep it simple with two bullet points one in 5 years time 100% of the country should be on metered every electricity consumer should be metered and that meter should be a smart meter right which means it should be able to do many more things like being switched on and off uh, measure peak loading uh, many things that a smart meter can do and the second bullet point should be that the movement for privatizing discom operations i'm i'm being very careful in my choice of words i am not saying sell distribution assets i'm saying this assets can still be owned by the state whether it is uttar pradesh or kerala but the operation of distribution of electricity can be privatized to remove 40 50 years of malfeasance that we have seen and a cancer that we are finding it difficult to remove from society as the last strike major strike in chandigarh has shown last week uh, where the entire city was blacked out in protest and that was unfortunate but we require the political will to do these two things and believe me while everything else will get taken care of in terms of fuels and generation and 100% journey and journey to 100% green it is the distribution sector that keeps me sleepless at night because in spite of the best intentions in the last 30 years we have not been able to demonstrate significant progress in this and this is one area where the technical solutions are very well known unfortunately there is a clear absence of political will you know good taking that further as a good example into your fourth bucket of operational efficiency where you rightly said you know the assets could remain owned by the government but maybe private sector comes in to operate that infra and just taking the same example that you talked of you know distribution how do we make this happen how do we innovate on policy making like if you says there the political will needs to change in 5 years right what do you suggest we how do we get started i mean where should the conversation begin whom should it involve uh, you know how, basically if we do have such ambitious you know uh, kind of goals for india at 100 what's that innovation that is required in in the policy making and implementation process you know for for us as a country either at a center or at a state level look there have been unpopular decisions that have been pushed through right delicensing in 91 was not very popular right but it was pushed through i first the privatization of the airports led to a lot of resistance yet you have seen the operations of delhi mumbai airport now and as an indian i feel pretty proud about it you have seen how shila dikshit was able to privatize the electricity distribution of delhi and the contract went to reliance and went to uh, tatas right so odisha for example has handed over its entire electricity distribution to tata power so the situation and many other states have in their own way tried to privatize power in smaller pockets it is so there it is not that there is a complete absence of political will from delhi to odisha you have shown that there is political will it needs to be applied and politician needs to stand up bravely from the opposition of vested interests that tend to oppose it having said it there is an, another interesting idea which i think should run in parallel which is creation of a national level national power distribution company i have argued at length and written on length there seems to be an aversion to handing over power assets to uh, to private companies immediately a very good halfway house is to transfer them voluntarily to a nationally created national power distribution company uh, i have i remember making this presentation to the prime minister at dpio few years ago it gained traction and in fact uh, a, a, a movement started where a new company was created with 50% equity by ttc and 50% by powergrid to take the idea forward unfortunately i looking back it was still born but the idea is still fresh and particularly with union territories you ask me what is a practical solution once such a national power distribution company is created and well capitalized then certainly the 
union, the, where the central government oh, uh, is the master, which is the union territories, at one stroke, all union territories can be handed over to the national power distribution company. And it can then get down to the task of cleaning up the distribution, putting smart meters, and having a demonstration effect of the art of the possible. Similarly, in BJP rule and other states that are favorable to the idea, people can, the politician can voluntarily affect pockets. It's such a vast subject that you won't be able to change it overnight. But you can start attacking pockets. So the government of Madhya Pradesh may say, take on Indore, or government of UP may say, take Kanpur and the hinterland around Kanpur. Like that, I personally believe that a national power distribution company should enter the scene and start making a difference and also a demonstration effect of the art of the possible. It's easily doable. And at some level, I would even like to believe that it had political acceptance, but like many other good schemes, it did not get sufficient traction in the bureaucracy. Yeah, no, I think, and creating these pockets of excellence then become role models for other states to take on as well, right? And I think that one and one will become 11 and 111 and the movement will come. One Delhi metro led to a revolution of different cities wanting their own metros. So these, yeah. rather than getting bogged down in changing India at one stroke, set up an NPDC, National Power Distribution Company, and ask for voluntary participation for people who want that change state governments and city administrations that want that change and begin with the union territories. No, I think makes makes complete sense and a great, great idea and a great point. And maybe identifying what some of those key initiatives are that, you know, if implemented at scale in India could make a meaningful difference over the next 25 years and yes. then really bringing the best into that first, you know, state or city, which is volunteering to, to kind of, you know, adopt that. I think great, great thoughts. So, Rajan, huh. India works in what is called the demonstration come cascade effect. Yeah. One Delhi metro, two airports, Delhi and Mumbai, arouse a desire for everybody to say, we can also do this now. One state road transport undertaking that uh, starts operating Volvo type air conditioned coaches city to city leads to a movement where every state transport undertakings do it because the customers demand it. So I'm saying it is difficult to reform electricity distribution countrywide at one stroke. Do it with the intervention of an NPDC. Do it in voluntary uh, acceptance of the concept by people who are willing players. Uh, and let's get on with it and use that cascade, demonstration come cascade effect to, to spread it across the next 25 years. No, no, absolutely. And you know, today the the benefits of that or the medium of communication through social, through so many other things, you know, really demonstrate the quality of life change that, you know, some of these things have been bringing in, you know, to come to your point. You know, so I think great, great point. And coming to your last bucket, you know, before we move on to other topics on, on, on the, uh, you know, Abdul Kalam's Pura idea. You know, I think even Prime Minister Modi had the urban idea. I still remember, you know, him having yeah. a discussion where I was there where he says, you know, urban infrastructure in rural India, you know, how do we make that happen? And I think the pandemic, you know, with, you know, the, especially the initial days of the pandemic, when we saw millions of people go back home, you know, into rural India, really triggered this at, at you know, thought at scale. And I think even within the India 75 Council at CII, you know, which was so focused on, you know, infrastructure in, in urban aspects of the city, because, you know, once you build skills, you know, people migrate into clusters and then you've got to create infrastructure as well as sustainability around that. Moving towards, you know, how do we really now create, you know, development aspects in rural India? And particularly are the aspirational districts, right? There are some where, you know, the, the disparity between just the basic needs, you know, and, and what is desired for even having people to just live in those areas, uh, you know, the gap is huge. And as India at 75, we have taken up a seven by seven by seven program, you know, seven districts uh, with, you know, seven bare minimum, uh, uh, you know, aspects of uh, life that are needed, you know, for that for that region and to ensure it is available seven days a week, you know, kind of really building something around that uh, has already started. But again, you know, uh, we brought corporates in uh, Vinayak, we've We've, we've put together a model, you know, there's still a limitation to, to what that could achieve. And maybe that's one area we, we can't wait for the next 20 years to say that we'll be able to bring all of India there, right? Is there a way for us to, to mobilize a very strong agenda 
you know, that will enable this because this is important for us, you know, even as a country, even beyond India, I think, right? Because if we want to develop, you know, rural India and make it sustainable, uh, I think we have to act now. So any thoughts on, on, on how we can, you know, in this particular case, see scalability sooner? Tough question, Rajan. I think I have, honestly, I don't think I have an answer to this one, except to say that a lot of what we are envisioning together, the task, the, the stage setting will have to be done by the government and the execution will have to be done by the private sector with private initiative and private capital. Now, inevitably, that means some kind of PPP frameworks and, I'm, and I have to drag PPP into it, which is public part, private partnerships. And that, to my mind, a vibrant PPP structure, creation of that enabling environment is the key to unlock the door to many of the things that we are looking forward to. The, unfortunately, our PPP structures are not robust. And after having made a very spirited start in the first decade of this century, it pitted out by 2012-14 till we have seen now that virtually we have gone back to a EPC mode, which is a Sarkari Tekedari mode. At one level, it is very sad. At a second level, it is positive in that it provides a challenge to say, if you recognize the proposition that it is private energy and capital that has to be harnessed with government providing enabled framework, then we have to recast the PPP frameworks. And this is what I've been arguing in CII, at NITI, and over the media for many years now that there are many inputs that have come to the government as to the mistakes that were made and how to create a robust PPP environment. It, it requires things like independent regulators. It requires provision for renegotiation. It requires a, a, an institution that preserves the intellectual capital of structuring PPPs. Uh, it requires implementation of the Kelkar Committee report, which uh, Dr. Kelkar reported. It's a brilliant treatise on how to revive PPP. So my single submission to a complex question would be, that the best brains in this country should be pulled together to answer the question, what is a robust PPP framework, universal in its appeal and tailored for suitable sectors that will enable private capital enterprise to be harnessed to achieve these goals in a PPP framework. But for that, we must first recognize that PPP needs to be revitalized. I am not very sure that that recognition is there in full measure, although in the recent past, I must say that I'm surprised that the realization is making a strong comeback, including a one para reference to me uh, in the budget speech by the finance minister talking about resurrecting PPP frameworks and the PM's constant exhaustion to private sector uh, to invest capital to get on with PPP frameworks. But the moot point remains that the exercise of recasting the PPP framework into a version 2.0 is of utmost necessity for this country if we are to harness private capital, energy, and the kind of thoughts that people like you are unleashing on us to achieve that. No, I think it's a, uh, definitely one area which needs, you know, uh, a lot of work, innovation, expertise. And, you know, the India model is going to be different from the way the rest of the world has looked at it. Though the capital can flow in from the world to build Indian infrastructure, I think that's just there, available, waiting yes. to flow in if we can get you know, this piece right. And, you know, now moving from there to a, to a subject, which is obviously what you started out, you're more comfortable with the immediate right and now. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the budget twice, you, you know, and I know you've had a lot of uh, comments on the recent budget and, you know, such a huge push, right, to infrastructure, you know, in the budget. But how, how do we prioritize that spend? And if we were to really look at the first, say, 100 days, right, uh, of, of, the, of the coming year, you know, what would you like to see happen? Right? Because all of this, uh, you know, Vinayak in some way is sending the message that, you know, accelerated infrastructure development is absolutely key today. And that acceleration probably needs to continue for a significant period of time for us to be able to unlock the true potential of what this sector can provide. Right. So in, in that light, where do you see prioritization happening? Say if you were, you know, I'm not going to put you in the as the minister to, to deliver this, but if you had to, you know, talk of a short-term way of getting this done, where, where would you start? You know, infrastructure push in the current context is a twin-engine effort. First, you require capital, and the second, you require projects. 
the first one, I am very pleased to say that after years of playing around with uh, how to finance infrastructure and the mistakes we have made of leaving it to the commercial banks, etc., India is well poised to fund infrastructure. I don't want to get into detail. We can have that chat. Uh, but the broad target in the here and now is that India needs to put in 20 to 22 lakh crores of infra every year. And the capital is available for that. Seven and a half lakh crores from the budget, six lakhs from the states, two, three lakhs from the new development financial agency, two to three lakh crores from the PSUs and extra budgetary resources, and uh, another uh, four crores from private capital. So if you add up all of that, 22 lakh crores is theoretically and conceptually available. The problem shifts to projectization and project implementation. I would focus on using the Gati Shakti framework. See, the Gati Shakti is a brilliant piece of software design. I think people have still not woken up to the power of what it unleashes. It, is, it has 800 layers which maps every infrastructure project, including interlinkages. Now, that program is, while it is going to be used to clear new projects and create alignments, can equally well monitor project implementation by satellite imagery and various other inputs. I would actually set up a black cat commando group specifically around the Gati Shakti, whose job would be to, on a weekly basis, track projects which have been sanctioned and implemented to find out what is holding them back and come up with and have that power within the political bureaucratic system, have that power to go in and solve it. It was partly demonstrated that this was possible when the UPA government had set up the PNG under a very eminent IS officer called Anil Swaroop, project management group. In those days, if you remember 2012 to 14, we had, a, we had an area of uh, darkness of saying decision paralysis and stalled projects of 20 lakh crores. That was the time PNG was set up and it did manage to unstick some six, seven lakh crore of projects. That was brilliant in its time, two years. A similar kind of empowered commander group, probably maybe under a dedicated minister, to push the pace of projectization, creating new projects and implementing projects that have been, and I am telling you, capital is not a problem. But I would focus on projects right now. And I, and I think this will also be able to bring in, you know, a, a large role that we've not really talked too much about that MSMEs can pay, play in in this sector, right? Because of the job creation and you know, seeing the economic value, you know, go across uh, the chain, right? And and, and you know, over the years, I think that is one sector that I don't know whether we talk enough of at an infrastructure conversation, though it's one of the strong building blocks of, of some of this. How, how do we ensure that, you know, larger number of MSMEs get involved in this sector? Is there firstly scope to do that? What's the best way to make that happen? Again, as an extension of what you just said, you know, how, how can that play out? So I will share with you a piece of interesting information that the finance secretary shared on a, I think it was a CNBC platform immediately after the budget. Think about it. He said they have done, they have now authentic research to substantiate the claim that one rupee spent on public work stroke infrastructure generates three rupees of GDP. Whereas one rupee spent in direct benefit transfer by putting money into the pockets of people directly translates to 90 paisa of GDP. So, at one level, you can see that the spend in uh, infrastructure has a, has a multiple of 3x so far as GDP is concerned. Now, if, if you have a 20 lakh crore spend on GDP in a particular annum, that means 60 lakh crores worth of demand created for jobs and services and goods. A large, I mean, even if you take a simple thing like, uh, you know, a road construction, a large amount of inputs are provided by MSMEs. They could be contractors, they could be subcontractors, they could be suppliers of simple material like guards, guardrails, like railings, right? Like bricks, like signboards, uh, which say NHAI. These are all poles. These are all products that inevitably are required to build a road. Similarly, if you talk of irrigation, there is a huge scope for MS for the demand to naturally percolate down to goods and services that MSMEs provide. So to my mind, 
you don't have to physically do anything. The sheer act of spending on infrastructure means that a whole generation of MSMEs will be given, uh, you know, a demand will be generated for them at very large measure. The, the tide will rise. And with the rising tide, the MSMEs ships will also rise with it. It's very clear in terms yeah yeah no and i think i think that's that's so clear and you know now given the mood of the country where you know startups are just booming right every day you open the newspaper you read of a new unicorn in this sector in that sector you know in the infra and infra tech struck you know kind of thing also i think there are a lot of new entrepreneurs who are coming in trying to build you know different aspects of that sector or scale but i don't know do you have have you come across any great new idea in recent times that you hugely, hugely. There are a whole bunch of entrepreneurs that are that are uh, using drone, uh, selling drone technology to the construction companies for uh, and even the government for mapping of alignments, project monitoring, progress, a whole lot of things. So a lot of entrepreneurs are coming into drone. A lot of uh, uh, entrepreneurs are coming into e-enablement uh, of infrastructure services, whether it is booking tickets for uh, state transport buses like there's entrepreneur called red bus or something there which is ticketing or uh, you know soil investigations before the earthwork starts right uh, there, there are huge amount of people startups that are coming into the infra space using digital and tech as their offerings huge amount especially in the social infrastructure side i think we are actually leading the world when it comes to yes. things like edutech you know, in many other areas, we are followers, but you know, that's specifically one area where, you know, some of the world's largest value creation is now happening out of India. So I think that's also a great opportunity for us to be able to harness, to see how, you know, the corporate startup connect program can enable better alignment around where those technologies should get deployed, particularly from an India context you know, and health education. So there are so many, you know, opportunities. So that's again, a, a fast emerging, area and maybe also an area which enables us to engage uh, you know internationally i think that's one uh, piece we haven't really talked about but you know how is the world really looking at uh, india when it comes to india's infrastructure development right and and how does india really engage globally i mean you've had tremendous experience in that space and and, and it would be nice to understand from you as to if we're looking again forward how should that change? Uh, you know, where do you see a, a better global engagement uh, for India around infra? That's a very, very good question. That story is not yet for infra services a boom story. It is popularly believed, and rightly so, that after IT services, it is the export of Indian engineering and project services that is going to be the next big boom in terms of service exports. So while IT is well known and well documented, the export of engineering and project services is still an area that's not understood. India in the past has had a fair amount of international experience where like building railways in the newly independent African countries was something that Wrights and Econ used to do. Uh, setting up uh, thermal power plants in Libya was something that BHEL used to do. So it's not that India did not, was a late starter. It was an early starter in the 50s and 60s. It were, But these were all largely G2G contracts. And increasingly, global contracts are now floated on a tender basis. And unfortunately, we find that our competitors, uh, it is inevitable to include China among them, but it is even beyond China. China, Japan, Malaysia, many countries that participate in international tenders for engineering services and project exports package their offer with very low-cost exim loans and very strong diplomatic engagement. Um, political also, as we have seen in the Chinese taking the ports in Sri Lanka, for example, or in Myanmar. So if India is to emerge as a superpower in engineering and project exports, we need a combination of very strong diplomatic aggression in winning those contracts and packaged with cheap financing from Exim Bank of India. Unfortunately, the way Exim Bank has been structured and capitalized does not recognize this reality. I have written on that subject also, and I hope 
that once again, we will be able to push the subject of Exim Bank and the Ministry of External Affairs working out a strategy paper, a white paper on how India could actually emerge in this area. But this is a very important point that is never discussed. And, and, and how do we, uh, you know, kickstart this, this, this process, right? While you, like you said, it requires probably more discussion. It requires more focus. You know, who are the players that you think one should engage with to make this happen? Honestly, we will, till we are able to emerge stronger in this area, we should be content to being subcontractors. Mm. And therefore, we should identify the top 100, 200 companies in the world who are winning these contracts. And if you are not able to compete with them and winning them for the reasons I just outlined, we should at least provide a package to them to say why Indian engineers and Indian, Indian experts should be employed in vast numbers. That itself will be a good beginning. Mm, absolutely. And I think also, you know, uh, I think one good part that happened to be able to draw attention to specific areas of the future, you know, like if you look at infrastructure status for data centers or, you know, energy storage systems, right? All of that, which is now getting discussed. I think, does that make a difference when one grants infrastructure status? Would that attract, you know, both capital, more entrepreneurship energy, more push from government? And what could some of these areas that you believe should get that status but are not getting it? Look, it's very popular to ask for infrastructure status. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, from sectors in social infrastructure to uh, ropeways now, to data centers, to hospitality, everybody wants to be called an infrastructure sector. I have analyzed that and I find that it theoretically it allows you some cheaper funds but to my mind, it is not a, it's not a big deal. So I, to be honest with you, whether you are part of the the finance ministry has a scheme called harmonized scheme of definition of infrastructure. I don't see it making too much of a difference on the ground. Hmm. Frankly. It's just, yeah, it's just something that brings little priority towards that sector. But... Yeah, I mean, in, in, put, in putting up an application to the banks and for permissions, you say, I'm part of the infrastructure sector. Uh, you can add on that for some sectors to say I'm an essential service and that adds some punch and weight to your demands. I'm not sure that uh, it adds anything of great substance. No, I, I think, uh, you know, we've had a wonderful discussion. I was just looking at the clock and <laughs> we are nearly yeah. at the hour and, you yeah. know, we can keep going on and on, but, you know, obviously, you know, we, we will need to kind of conclude this discussion. Uh, so, you know, we've discussed holistically, right? When I have so many different aspects and, you know, you so beautifully articulated, uh, you know, the priority areas, how are we looking at leapfrogging going forward? Uh, you know, so many innovations, methodologies, and, and so many different aspects. But, you know, maybe as we end, you know, what, what do you think are the non-negotiables, you know, of this great rapid infrastructure change that we are looking for us as a country? So while we are going to do all of this, right, like we talked briefly about keeping the citizen at the center and building things around the citizen, you know, really bringing villages and districts that are not creating enough employment and you know forcing people to move out to becoming you know self-developed and many aspects in an india context right if we talk of holistic infra development and changing the quality of life you know where we really started out you know with this conversation that ultimately what infrastructure can do to change the quality of human life is 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 absolutely you know super critical uh, you know in in this context so as we are moving you know towards the end of this conversation what what is your one message the one thing that you would love to see when we talk of india at 100 you know that dream right you know dreams can go on one hour we can keep talking but if you had to you know capture that dream in in, in two lines or or you know create something more specific or holistic around all that we've discussed, uh, how would you like to end this conversation with? I would say get private sector energy and capital, domestic and foreign, to achieve all the moving parts of this dream with government providing the governance and the, and the, and the enabling environment to do so. And therefore, 
the single one non-negotiable is that the time is past when we should be resetting PPP frameworks. Without that, it will not happen. Oh, I think very, very well focused and, and articulated. And you know, I think, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard that uh, from Vinayak. It's been a very, very engaging discussion. I think we've covered so many different aspects of uh, infrastructure and the dream uh, for what uh, infrastructure could mean to a country like India, not only today, but even in 2047. And you know, it's, it's often said that, you know, when, you're, when your mind is stretched by an idea, and Vinayak, you have given us so many ideas, it's absolutely impossible to return to its original dimension. So at least my mind has expanded significantly, you know, through this conversation. And I'm sure everybody who is who's listening in has also benefited, you know, from that. And I'm sure, you know, the passion that you have exhibited uh, in this whole conversation will, the energy from that will, will roll into many others uh, to make this vision really come true. So once again, thank you so much for, for spending this hour with us, with India at 75, with CII, and really driving us towards what we should be thinking as we think of India at 2047 and India at 100. So thank you. Thank you, Vinayak. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. This was Vinayak Chatterjee, the chairman of CII's National Council on Infrastructure, in an interesting conversation with host Rajan Navani, where he shared how we can accelerate growth in the infrastructure sector in this disruptive world. Thank you all for tuning into the I Have a Dream podcast. Stay tuned for more conversations where we explore what India has overcome and what India can do to become a strong leader as we enter a golden period.